0: Lasseter discovers another plot to sabotage Jane Witherstein's cattle, and only he can stop it. Zane Gray, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are proudly supported by our listeners. We couldn't do this without you. Your monthly donation helps in so many ways, and it also gives you access to more classic titles. Go to classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a financial supporter today. Thank you so much. The Arsène Lupin podcast is out. Four episodes are now available on the feed, and a new episode will be released every Wednesday. Right now this is a limited series, but if it takes off, we may add to it. So tell your friends about our favorite Gentleman Burglar's Own Show. A link to subscribe can be found in the notes for today's episode. This week we continue our series of Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Gray. Last week, we followed Venters as he discovered the hideout of the cattle rustlers and discovered that the famed masked rider was, in fact, a young woman. Our story now turns back to Jane Withersteen as she tries to discover who called her riders in, opening the door for her herd of 2,500 cattle to be stolen. And now, Riders of the Purple Sage, part three of 12, by Zane Gray. Chapter six, The Mill Wheel of Steers. Meantime, at the ranch, when Judkins's news had sent Venters on the trail of the rustlers, Jane Withersteen led the injured man to her house, and with skilled fingers dressed the gunshot wound in his arm. "Judkins, what do you think happened to my riders?" "I-I'd rather not say," he replied. "Tell me. Whatever you'll tell me I'll keep to myself. I'm beginning to worry about more than the loss of a herd of cattle. Venters hinted of. But tell me, Judkins. Well, Miss Witherstein, I think as Venters thinks, your riders have been called in. Judkins? By whom? You know who handles the reins of your Mormon riders. Do you dare insinuate that my churchmen have ordered in my riders? I ain't insinuating nothing, Miss Witherstein, answered Judkins with spirit. I know what I'm talking about. I didn't want to tell you. Oh, I can't believe that. I'll not believe it. Would Tull leave my herds at the mercy of rustlers and wolves just because, because, no, no, it's unbelievable. Is there particular things unheard of around Cottonwoods? But begging pardon, Miss Witherstein. There never was any other rich Mormon woman here on the border, let alone one that's taken the bit between her teeth. That was a bold thing for the reserved Judkins to say, but it did not anger her. This writer's crude hint of her spirit gave her a glimpse of what others might think. Humility and obedience had been hers always. But had she taken the bit between her teeth? Still she wavered. And then, with quick spurt of warm blood along her veins, she thought of Black Star when he got the bit fast between his iron jaws and ran wild in the sage. If she ever started to run, Jane smothered the glow and burn within her, ashamed of a passion for freedom that opposed her duty. Judkins, go to the village, she said. And when you have learned anything definite about my riders, please come to me at once. When he had gone, Jane resolutely applied her mind to a number of tasks that of late had been neglected. Her father had trained her in the management of a hundred employees and the working of gardens and fields, and to keep record of the movements of cattle and riders. And beside the many duties she had added to this work was one of extreme delicacy, such as required all her tact and ingenuity it was an unobtrusive, almost secret aid, which she rendered to the Gentile families of the village. Though Jane Witherstein never admitted so to herself, it amounted to no less than a system of charity. But for her invention of numberless kinds of employment, for which there was no actual need, these families of Gentiles, who had failed in a Mormon community, would have starved. In aiding these poor people, Jane thought she deceived her keen churchman. But it was a kind of deceit for which she did not pray to be forgiven. Equally as difficult was the task of deceiving the Gentiles, for they were as proud as they were poor. It had been a great grief for her to discover how these people hated her people, and it had been a source of great joy that through her they had come to soften in hatred. At any time this work called for a clearness of mind that precluded anxiety and worry. But under the present circumstances, it required all her vigor and obstinate tenacity to pin her attention upon her task. Sunset came, bringing with the end of her labor, a patient calmness and power to wait that had not been hers earlier in the day. She expected Judkins, but he did not appear. Her house was always quiet, Tonight, however, it seemed unusually so. At supper, her women served her with a silent assiduity. It spoke what their sealed lips could not utter, the sympathy of Mormon women. Jerd came to her with the key of the great door of the stone stable and to make his daily report about the horses. One of his daily duties was to give Black Star and Knight and the other racers a ten-mile run. This day it had been omitted, and the boy grew confused in explanations that she had not asked for. She did inquire if he would return on the morrow, and Jerd, in mingled surprise and relief, assured her he would always work for her. Jane missed the rattle and trot, canter and gallop of the incoming riders on the hard trails. Dusk shaded the grove where she walked. The birds ceased singing. The wind sighed through the leaves of the cottonwoods, and the running water murmured down its stone-bedded channel. The glimmering of the first star was like the peace and beauty of the night. Her faith welled up in her heart, and said that all would soon be right in her little world. She pictured Venters about his lonely campfire, sitting between his faithful dogs. She prayed for his safety, for the success of his undertaking. Early the next morning, one of Jane's women brought in word that Judkins wished to speak to her. She hurried out, and in her surprise to see him armed with rifle and revolver, she forgot her intention to inquire about his wound. Judkins! Those guns! You never carried guns! It's high time, Miss Witherstein, he replied. Will you come into the grove? It ain't just exactly safe for me to be seen here. She walked with him into the shade of the cottonwoods. What do you mean? Miss Withersteen, I went to my mother's house last night. While there, someone knocked, and a man asked for me. I went to the door. He wore a mask. He said I'd better not ride any more for Jane Withersteen. His voice was hoarse and strange, disguised, I reckon, like his face. He said no more and ran off in the dark. Do you know who he was? Asked Jane in a low voice. Yes. Jane did not ask to know. She did not want to know. She feared to know. All her calmness fled at a single thought. That's why I'm packing guns, went on Judkins. For I'll never quit riding for you, Miss Witherstein, till you let me go. Judkins? Judkins? Do you want to leave me? Do I look that way? Give me a horse, a fast horse, and send me out on the sage. Oh, thank you, Judkins. You're more faithful than my own people. I ought not to accept your loyalty. You might suffer more through it. But what in the world can I do? My head whirls. The wrong to venters, the stolen herd, these masks, threats, this coil in the dark. I can't understand, but I feel something dark and terrible closing in around me. Miss Witherstein, it's all simple enough, said Junkins earnestly. Now please listen. and beggin' your pardon. Just turn that deaf Mormon ear aside and let me talk clear and plain in the other. I went around to the saloons and the stores and the loafin' places yesterday. All your riders are in. There's talk of a vigilance band organized to hunt down rustlers. They call themselves the Riders. That's the report. That's the reason given for your riders leaving you. Strange that only a few riders of other ranchers joined the band. And Tull's man, Jerry Card, he's the leader. I seen him on his horse. He ain't been to Glaze. I'm not easy to fool on the looks of a horse that's traveled the sage. Tull and Jerry didn't ride to Glaze. Well, I met Blake and Dorn. Both good friends of mine, usually, as far as their Mormon lights will let them go. But these fellers couldn't fool me, and they didn't try very hard. I asked them, straight out like a man, why they left you like that. I didn't forget to mention how you nursed Blake's poor old mother when she was sick, and how good you was to Dorn's kids. They looked ashamed, Miss Witherstein. And they just froze up. That dark, set look that makes him strange and different to me. But I could tell the difference between that first natural twinge of conscience and the later look of some secret thing. The difference I caught was that they couldn't help themselves. They hadn't no say in the matter. They looked as if they were being unfaithful to you, was being faithful to a higher duty. And there's the secret. Why, that's as plain as as sight of my gun here. Plain, my herd's to wander in the sage to be stolen, Jane Withersteen, a poor woman, her head to be brought low and her spirit broken, why, oh, Judkins, it's plain enough, Miss Withersteen, let me get what boys I can gather and hold the white herd. It's on the slope now, not ten miles out, three thousand head, and all steers, they're wild and likely to stampede at the pop of a jackrabbit's ears. We'll camp right with them and try to hold them. Judkins, I'll reward you some day for your service, unless all is taken from me. Get the boys and tell Jerd to give you pick of my horses, except Black Star and Knight, but do not shed blood for my cattle nor heedlessly risk your lives. Jane Withersteen rushed to the silence and seclusion of her room, and there could not longer hold back the bursting of her wrath. She went stone blind in the fury of a passion that had never before showed its power. Lying upon her bed, sightless, voiceless, she was a writhing, living flame. She tossed there while her fury burned and burned, and finally burned itself out. Then, weak and spent, she lay thinking, not of the oppression that would break her, but of this new revelation of self. Until the last few days, there had been little in her life to rouse passions. Her forefathers had been Vikings, savage chieftains who bore no cross and brooked no hindrance to their will. Her father had inherited that temper, and at times, like Antelope fleeing before fire on the slope, his people fled from his red rages. Jane Witherstein realized that the spirit of wrath and war had lain dormant in her. She shrank from black depths, hitherto unsuspected. The one thing in man or woman that she scorned above all scorn and which she could not forgive was hate. Hate headed a flaming pathway straight to hell. All in a flash, beyond her control, there had been in her a birth of fiery hate. And the man who had dragged her peaceful and loving spirit to this degradation was a minister of God's word, an elder of her church, the counselor of her beloved bishop. The loss of herds and ranges, even of Amber Spring and the old stone house, no longer concerned Jane Withersteen. She faced the foremost thought of her life, What she now considered the mightiest problem, the salvation of her soul. She knelt by her bedside and prayed. She prayed as she had never prayed in all her life. Prayed to be forgiven of her sin, to be immune from that dark, hot hate. To love Tull as her minister, though she could not love him as a man. To do her duty by her church and people, and those dependent upon her bounty to hold reverence of God and womanhood violet. When Jane Witherstein rose from that storm of wrath and prayer for help, she was serene, calm, sure, a changed woman. She would do her duty as she saw it, live her life as her own truth guided her. She might never be able to marry a man of her choice, but she certainly never would become the wife of Tull. Her churchmen might take her cattle and horses, ranges and fields, her corrals and stables, the house of Witherstein, and the water that nourished the village of Cottonwoods, but they could not force her to marry Tull. They could not change her decision or break her spirit. Once resigned to further loss and sure of herself, Jane Witherstein attained a peace of mind that had not been hers for a year. She forgave Tull and felt a melancholy regret over what she knew he considered duty, irrespective of his personal feeling for her. First of all, Tull, as he was a man, wanted her for himself. And secondly, he hoped to save her and her riches for his church. She did not believe that Tull had been actuated solely by his minister's zeal to save her soul. She doubted her interpretation of one of his dark sayings, that if she were lost to him, she might as well be lost to heaven. Jane Witherstein's common sense took arms against the binding limits of her religion, and she doubted that her bishop, whom she had been taught had direct communication with God, would damn her soul For refusing to marry a Mormon. As for Tull and his churchmen, when they had harassed her, perhaps made her poor, they would find her unchangeable, and then she would get back most of what she had lost. So she reasoned, true at last to her faith in all men and in their ultimate goodness. The clank of iron hoofs upon the stone courtyard drew her hurriedly from her retirement. There, beside his horse, stood Lassiter, his dark apparel and the great black gun sheaths contrasting singularly with his gentle smile. Jane's active mind took up her interest in him, and her half-determined desire to use what charm she had to foil his evident design in visiting cottonwoods. If she could mitigate his hatred of Mormons, or at least keep him from killing more of them, Not only would she be saving her people, but also be leading back this blood spiller to some semblance of the human. Morning, ma'am, he said, black sombrero in hand. "Lassiter, I'm not an old woman or even a madam, she replied with her bright smile. If you can't say Miss Witherstein, call me Jane. I reckon Jane would be easier. First names are always handy for me. Well, use mine then, Lassiter. I'm glad to see you. I'm in trouble. Then she told him of Judkin's return, of the driving of the Red Herd, of Venter's departure on Wrangle, and the calling in of her riders. Appears to me you're some smiling and pretty for a woman with so much trouble, he remarked. Lassiter, are you paying me compliments? But seriously, I've made up my mind not to be miserable. I've lost much, and I'll lose more. Nevertheless, I won't be sour, and I hope I'll never be unhappy again. Lassiter twisted his hat round and round, as was his way, and took his time in replying. Women are strange to me. I got to back trailing myself from them long ago, but I'd like a game woman. Might I ask, seeing as how you take this trouble, if you're going to fight, "'Fight? How? Even if I would, I haven't a friend except that boy who doesn't dare stay in the village.' "'I make bold to say, ma'am, Jane, that there's another, if you want him.' "'Lassiter, thank you. But how can I accept you as a friend? Think, while you ride down into the village with those terrible guns and kill my enemies, who are also my churchmen.' I reckon I might be riled up to just about that, he replied dryly. She held out both hands to him. Lassiter, I'll accept your friendship, be proud of it, return it, if I may keep you from killing another Mormon. I'll just tell you one thing, he said bluntly, as the gray lightning formed in his eyes. You're too good a woman to be sacrificed, as you're going to be. Now. Nope. I reckon you and me can't be friends on such terms. In her earnestness, she stepped closer to him, repelled yet fascinated by the sudden transition of his moods. That he would fight for her was at once horrible and wonderful. You came here to kill a man. The man whom Millie Earn, the man who dragged Millie Earn to hell, put it that way. Jane Witherspoon, yes, that's why I came here. I tell so much to no other living soul. There's things such a woman as you never dream of, so don't mention her again. Not till you tell me the name of the man. Tell you? I? Never. I reckon you will, and I'll never ask you. I'm a man of strange beliefs and ways of thinking, and I seem to see into the future and feel things hard to explain. The trail I've been following for so many years was twisted and tangled, but it's straightening out now. And Jane Witherstein, you crossed it long ago to ease poor Millie's agony. That, whether you want or not, makes Lassiter your friend. But you cross it now, strangely, to mean something to me, God knows what, unless by your noble blindness to incite me to greater hatred of Mormon men. Jane felt swayed by a strength that far exceeded her own. In a clash of wills with this man, she would go to the wall. If she were to influence him, it must be wholly through womanly allurement. There was that about Lassiter which commanded her respect. She had abhorred his name. Face to face with him, she found she feared only his deeds. His mystic suggestion, his foreshadowing of something that she was to mean to him, pierced deep into her mind. She believed fate had thrown in her way the lover or husband of Millie Earn. She believed that through her an evil man might be reclaimed. His allusion to what he called her blindness terrified her. Such a mistaken idea of his might unleash the bitter, fatal mood she sensed in him. At any cost, she must placate this man. She knew the die was cast, and that if Lassiter did not soften to a woman's grace and beauty and wiles, then it would be because she could not make him. I reckon you'll hear no more such talk from me, Lassiter went on presently. Now, Miss Jane, I rode in to tell you that your herd of white steers is down on the slope behind them big ridges, and I seen something going on that'd be mighty interesting to you, if you could see it. Have you a field glass? Yes, I have two glasses. I'll get them and ride out with you. Wait, Lassiter, please, she said, and hurried within. Sending word to Jerd to saddle Black Star and fetch him to the court, she then went to her room and changed to the riding clothes she always donned when going into the sage. In this male attire, her mirror showed her a jaunty, handsome rider. If she expected some little need of admiration from Lassiter, She had no cause for disappointment. The gentle smile that she liked, which made of him another person, slowly overspread his face. If I didn't take you for a boy, he exclaimed, it's powerful queer what difference clothes make. Now I've been some scared of your dignity, like when the other night you was all in white, but in this rig? Black Star came pounding into the court, dragging Jerd half off his feet, and he whistled at Lassiter's black. But at sight of Jane, all his defiant lines seemed to soften, and with tosses of his beautiful head, he whipped his bridle. Down, Blackstar, down, said Jane. He dropped his head, and slowly lengthening, he bent one foreleg, then the other, and sank to his knees. Jane slipped her left foot in the stirrup, swung lightly into the saddle, and Blackstar rose with a ringing stamp. It was not easy for Jane to hold him to a canter through the grove, and like the wind, he broke when he saw the sage. Jane let him have a couple of miles of free running on the open trail, and then she coaxed him in and waited for her companion. Lassiter was not long in catching up, and presently they were riding side by side. It reminded her how she used to ride with Venters. Where was he now? She gazed far down the slope, to the curved purple lines of Deception Pass, and involuntarily shut her eyes with a trembling stir of nameless fear. We'll turn off here, Lassiter said, and take to the sage a mile or so. The white herd is behind them big ridges. What are you going to show me? Asked Jane. I'm prepared. Don't be afraid. He smiled, as if he meant that bad news came swiftly enough Without being presaged by speech. When they reached the lee of a rolling ridge, Lassiter dismounted, motioning to her to do likewise. They left the horses standing, bridles down. Then Lassiter, carrying the field glasses, began to lead the way up the slow rise of ground. Upon nearing the summit, he halted her with a gesture. I reckon we'd see more if we didn't show ourselves against the sky he said. I was here less than an hour ago. Then, the herd was seven or eight miles south, and if they ain't bolted yet, Lassiter, bolted? That's what I said. Now let's see. Jane climbed a few more paces behind him, and then peeped over the ridge. Just beyond, began a shallow swale that deepened and widened into a valley, and then swung to the left, Following the undulating sweep of sage, Jane saw the straggling lines and then the great body of the white herd. She knew enough about steers, even at a distance of four or five miles, to realize that something was in the wind. Bringing her field glass into use, she moved it slowly from left to right, which action swept the whole herd into range. The stragglers were restless. The more compactly massed steers were browsing. Jane brought the glass back to the big sentinels of the herd, and she saw them trot with quick steps, stop short, and toss wide horns, look everywhere, and then trot in another direction. Judkins hasn't been able to get his boys together yet, said Jane. But he'll be here soon. I hope not too late. Lassiter, what's frightening those big leaders? Nothing just on the minute, replied Lassiter. Them steers are quietin' down. They've been scared, but not bad yet. I reckon the whole herd has moved a few miles this way since I was here. They didn't browse that distance, not in less than an hour. Cattle aren't sheep. No, they just run it, and that looks bad. Lassiter, what frightened them? repeated Jane impatiently. Put down your glass. You'll see it first better with the naked eye. Now look along them ridges on the other side of the herd. The ridges where the sun shines bright on the sage. That's right. Now look and look hard and wait. Long, drawn moments of straining sight rewarded Jane with nothing save the low purple rim of ridge and the shimmering sage. It's begun again, whispered Lassiter, and he gripped her arm. Watch. There. Did you see that? No. No, tell me what to look for. A white flash, a kind of pinpoint of quick light, a gleam as from sun shining on something white. Suddenly, Jane's concentrated gaze caught a fleeting glint. Quickly, she brought her glass to bear on the spot. Again, the purple sage, magnified in color and size and wave, for long moments, irritated her with its monotony. Then, from out of the sage on the ridge, flew up a broad, white object, flashed in the sunlight, and vanished, like magic it was, and bewildered Jane. What on earth is that? I reckon there's someone behind that ridge, throwing up a sheet or a white blanket, to reflect the sunshine. Why? queried Jane, more bewildered than ever. To stampede the herd, replied Lassiter and his teeth clicked. Oh! She made a fierce, passionate movement, clutched the glass tightly, shook as with the passing of a spasm, and then dropped her head. Presently she raised it to greet Lassiter with something like a smile. My righteous brethren are at work again, she said in scorn. She had stifled the leap of her wrath, but for perhaps the first time in her life a bitter derision Curled her lips. Lassiter's cool gray eyes seemed to pierce her. I said I was prepared for anything, but that was hardly true. But why would they, anybody, stampede my cattle? That's a Mormon's godly way of bringing a woman to her knees. Lassiter, I'll die before I ever bend my knees. I might be led. I won't be driven. Do you expect the herd to bolt? I don't like the looks of them big steers, but you can never tell. Cattle sometimes stampede as easily as buffalo. Any little flash or move will start them. A rider getting down and walking towards them sometimes will make them jump and fly. Then again, nothing seems to scare them. But I reckon that white flare will do the biz. It's a new one to me, and I've seen some ridin' and rustlin'. It just takes one of them God-fearing Mormons to think of devilish tricks. Lassiter, might not this trick be done by Old Ring's men? Asked Jane, ever grasping at straws. It might be, but it ain't, replied Lassiter. Old Ring's an honest thief. He don't skulk behind ridges to scatter your cattle to the four winds. He rides down on you, and if you don't like it, you can throw a gun. Jane bit her tongue to refrain from championing men who at the very moment were proving to her that they were little and mean compared even with rustlers. Look, Jane, them leading steers have bolted. They're drawing the stragglers, and that'll pull the whole herd. Jane was not quick enough to catch the details called out by Lassiter, but she saw the line of cattle lengthening. Then... Like a stream of white bees pouring from a huge swarm, the steers stretched out from the main body. In a few moments, with astonishing rapidity, the whole herd got into motion. A faint roar of trampling hoofs came to Jane's ears, and gradually swelled. Low, rolling clouds of dust began to rise above the sage. It's a stampede and a hummer, said Lassiter. Oh, Lassiter! The herd's running with the valley! It leads into the canyon. There's a straight jump off. I reckon they'll run into it too. But that's a good many miles yet. And Jane, this valley swings round almost north before it goes east. That stampede will pass within a mile of us. The long, white, bobbing line of steers streaked swiftly through the sage. And a funnel-shaped dust cloud arose at a low angle. A dull rumbling filled Jane's ears. I'm thinking of millin' that herd, said Lassiter. His gray glance swept up the slope to the west. There's some specks and dust way off toward the village. Maybe that's Judkins and his boys. It ain't likely he'll get here in time to help. You'd better hold Black Star here on this high ridge. He ran to his horse, and throwing off saddlebags and tightening the cinches, he leapt astride and galloped straight down across the valley. Jane went for Black Star and leading him to the summit of the ridge, she mounted and faced the valley with excitement and expectancy. She had heard of milling stampeded cattle and knew it was a feat accomplished by only the most daring riders. The white herd was now strung out in a line two miles long. The dull rumble of thousands of hoofs deepened into continuous low thunder, and as the steers swept swiftly closer, the thunder became a heavy roll. Lassiter crossed in a few moments the level of the valley to the eastern rise of ground, and there waited the coming of the herd. Presently, as the head of the white line reached a point opposite to where Jane stood, Lassiter spurred his black into a run. Jane saw him take a position on the offside of the leaders of the stampede, and there he rode. It was like a race. They swept on down the valley, and when the end of the white line neared Lassiter's first stand, the head had begun to swing round to the west. It swung slowly and stubbornly yet surely, and gradually assumed a long, beautiful curve of moving white. To Jane's amaze she saw the leaders swinging, turning till they headed back toward her and up the valley. Out to the right of these wild plunging steers ran Lassiter's Black, and Jean's keen eye appreciated the fleet stride and sure footedness of the blind horse. Then it seemed that the herd moved in a great curve, a huge half moon, with the points of head and tail almost opposite and a mile apart. But Lassiter relentlessly crowded the leaders, shearing them to the left, turning them little by little. And the dust blinded wild followers plunged on madly in the tracks of their leaders. This ever moving, ever changing curve of steers rolled toward Jane, and when below her, Scarce half a mile, it began to narrow and close into a circle. Lassiter had ridden parallel with her position, turned toward her, then aside. And now, he was riding directly away from her, all the time pushing the head of that bobbing line inward. It was then that Jane, suddenly understanding Lassiter's feat, stared and gasped at the riding of this intrepid man. His horse was fleet and tireless but blind. He had pushed the leaders around and around till they were about to turn in on the inner side of the end of that line of steers. The leaders were already running in a circle. The end of the herd was still running almost straight, but soon they would be wheeling. Then, when Lassiter had the circle formed, how would he escape? With Jane Witherstein prayer was as easy as praise, and she prayed for this man's safety. A circle of dust began to collect. Dimly, as through a yellow veil, Jane saw Lassiter press the leaders inward to close the gap in the sage. She lost sight of him in the dust. Again, she thought she saw the black, riderless now, rear and drag himself and fall. Lassiter had been thrown, lost. Then he reappeared, running out of the dust into the sage. He had escaped and she breathed again. Spellbound, Jane Witherstein watched this stupendous mill wheel of steers. Here was the milling of the herd. The white running circle closed in upon the open space of sage, and the dust circles closed above into a pall. The ground quaked, and the incessant thunder of pounding hoofs rolled on. Jane felt deafened, yet she thrilled to a new sound. As the circle of sage lessened, the steers began to bawl, and when it closed entirely, there came a great upheaval in the center, and a terrible thumping of heads and clicking of horns. bawling, climbing, goring, the great mass of steers on the inside wrestled in a crashing din, heaved and groaned under the pressure. Then came a deadlock. The inner strife ceased, and the hideous roar and crash. Movement went on in the outer circle, and that too gradually stilled. The white herd had come to a stop, and the pall of yellow dust began to drift away on the wind. Jane Witherstein waited on the ridge with full and grateful heart. Lassiter appeared, making his weary way toward her through the sage, and up on the slope, Judkins rode into sight with his troop of boys. For the present at least, the white herd would be looked after. When Lassiter reached her and laid his hand on Black Star's mane, Jane could not find speech. Kill my horse he panted. Oh, I'm sorry, cried Jane. Lassiter, I know you can't replace him, but I'll give you any of my racers, bells or night, even Black Star. I'll take a fast horse, Jane. But not one of your favorites, he replied. Only, will you let me have Black Star now, and ride him over there and head off them fellers who stampeded the herd? He pointed to several moving specks of black and puffs of dust in the purple sage. I can head them off with this horse, and then, then, Lassiter? They'll never stampede no more cattle. Oh, no, no, Lassiter, I won't let you go! But a flush of fire flamed in her cheeks, and her trembling hands shook Black Star's bridle, and her eyes fell before Lassiter's. Chapter 7 The Daughter of Witherstein Lassiter, will you be my rider? Jane had asked him. I reckon so, he had replied. Few as the words were, Jane knew how infinitely much they implied. She wanted him to take charge of her cattle and horse and ranges, and save them if that were possible. Yet though she could not have spoken aloud all she meant, she was perfectly honest with herself. Whatever the price to be paid, she must keep Lassiter close to her. She must shield from him the man who had led Millie Earn to Cottonwoods. In her fear, she so controlled her mind that she did not whisper this Mormon's name to her own soul. She did not even think it. Besides, beyond this thing she regarded as a sacred obligation thrust upon her, was the need of a helper, of a friend, of a champion at this critical time. If she could rule this gunman, as Venters had called him, if she could even keep him from shedding blood, What strategy to play his flame and his presence against the game of oppression her churchmen were waging against her. Never would she forget the effect on Tull and his men when Venters shouted Lassiter's name. If she could not wholly control Lassiter, then what she could do might put off the fatal day. One of her safe racers was a dark bay, and she called him Bells because of the way he struck his iron shoes on the stones. When Jerd let out this slender, beautifully built horse, Lassiter suddenly became all eyes. A rider's love of a thoroughbred shone in them. Round and round, Bells, he walked, plainly weakening all the time in his determination not to take one of Jane's favorite racers. Lassiter, you're half horse, and Bells sees it already, said Jane, laughing. Look at his eyes. He likes you. He'll love you too. How can you resist him, oh, Lassiter, but bells can run it's nip and tuck between him and wrangle, and only Black Star can beat him. He's too spirited a horse for a woman. Take him, he's yours. I just am weak where a horse is concerned, said Lassiter. I'll take him, and I'll take your orders, ma'am. Well, I'm glad, but never mind the ma'am. Let it still be Jane. From that hour, it seemed, Lassiter was always in the saddle, riding early and late, and coincident with his part in Jane's affairs, the days assumed their old tranquility. Her intelligence told her this was only the lull before the storm, but her faith would not have it so. She resumed her visits to the village, and upon one of these she encountered Tull. He greeted her as he had before any trouble came between them, And she, responsive to peace, if not quick to forget, met him halfway, with manner almost cheerful. He regretted the loss of her cattle. He assured her that the vigilantes which had been organized would soon rout the rustlers. When that had been accomplished, her riders would likely return to her. You've done a headstrong thing to hire this man Lassiter. Tull went on severely. He came to Cottonwoods with evil intent, I had to hire somebody, and perhaps making him my writer may turn out best in the end for the Mormons of Cottonwoods. You mean to stay his hand? I do, if I can. A woman like you can do anything with a man. That would be well, and would atone in some measure for the errors you have made. He bowed and passed on. Jane resumed her walk with conflicting thoughts. She resented Elder Tull's cold, impassive manner that looked down upon her as one who had incurred his just displeasure. Otherwise, he would have been the same calm, dark-browed, impenetrable man she had known for ten years. In fact, except when he had revealed his passion in the matter of the seizing of venters, she had never dreamed he could be other than the grave, reproving preacher. He stood out now a strange, secretive man. She would have thought better of him if he had picked up the threads of their quarrel where they had parted. Was Tull what he appeared to be? The question flung itself involuntarily over Jane Witherstein's inhibitive habit of faith without question, and she refused to answer it. Tull could not fight in the open. Venters had said, Lassiter had said, that her elder shirked fight and worked in the dark. Just now in this meeting, Tull had ignored the fact that he had sued, exhorted, demanded that she marry him. He made no mention of Venters. His manner was that of the minister who had been outraged, but who overlooked the frailties of a woman. Beyond question, he seemed unutterably aloof from all knowledge of pressure being brought to bear upon her absolutely guiltless of any connection with secret power over riders, with night journeys, with rustlers and stampedes of cattle. And that convinced her again of unjust suspicions. But it was convincement through an obstinate faith. She shuddered as she accepted it. And that shudder was the nucleus of a terrible revolt. Jane turned into one of the wide lanes leading from the main street, and entered a huge, shady yard. Here were sweet-smelling clover, alfalfa, flowers and vegetables, all growing in happy confusion. And like these fresh green things were dozens of babies, tots, toddlers, noisy urchins, laughing girls, a whole multitude of children of one family. For Collier Brandt, the father of all this numerous progeny, was a Mormon with four wives. The big house where they lived was old, solid, picturesque. The lower part built of logs, the upper of rough clapboards, with vines growing up the outside stone chimneys. There were many wooden shuttered windows and one pretentious window of glass proudly curtained in white. As this house had four mistresses, it likewise had four separate sections not one of which communicated with another, and all had to be entered from the outside. In the shade of a wide, low, vine-roofed porch, Jane found Brant's wives entertaining Bishop Dyer. They were motherly women, of comparatively similar ages, and plain-featured, and just at this moment anything but grave. The bishop was rather tall, of stout build, with iron-gray hair and beard, and eyes of light blue. They were merry now, but Jane had seen them when they were not, and then she feared him, as she had feared her father. The women flocked around her in welcome. Daughter of Witherstein, said the bishop gaily, as he took her hand. You have not been prodigal of your gracious self of late? A Sabbath without you at service? I shall reprove Elder Tull, Bishop, the guilt is mine. I'll come to you and confess, Jane replied lightly. But she felt the undercurrent of her words. Mormon love-making!" exclaimed the bishop, rubbing his hands. Tull keeps you all to himself. No, he is not courting me. What? The laggard? If he does not make haste, I'll go courting myself up to Withersteen House. There was laughter and further bantering by the bishop and then mild talk of village affairs. After which he took his leave, and Jane was left with her friend, Mary Brand. Jane, you're not yourself. Are you sad about the rustling of the cattle? But you have so many, you are so rich. Then Jane confided in her, telling much, yet holding back her doubts of fear. Oh, why don't you marry Tull and be one of us? But Mary, I don't love Tull, said Jane stubbornly. "'I don't blame you for that. "'But, Jane Witherstein, "'you've got to choose between the love of man "'and love of God. "'Often we Mormon women have to do that. "'It's not easy. "'The kind of happiness you want, I wanted once. "'I never got it, nor will you, "'unless you throw away your soul. "'We've all watched your affair with Venters "'in fear and trembling. "'Some dreadful thing will come of it. "'You don't want him hanged or shot "'or treated worse.' as that Gentile boy was treated in glaze for fooling round a Mormon woman. Mary Tull. It's your duty as a Mormon. You feel no rapture as his wife, but think of heaven. Mormon women don't marry for what they expect on earth. Take up the cross, Jane. Remember, your father found Amber Spring, built these old houses, brought Mormons here, and fathered them. You are the daughter of Witherstein. Jane left Mary Brandt and went to call upon other friends. They received her with the same glad welcome as had Mary, lavished upon her the pent-up affection of Mormon women, and let her go with her ears ringing of Tull, Venters, Lassiter, of duty to God and glory in heaven. Verily, murmured Jane, I don't know myself when, through all this, I remain unchanged, nay, more fixed of purpose. She returned to the main street and bent her thoughtful steps toward the center of the village. A string of wagons, drawn by oxen, was lumbering along. These sage freighters, as they were called, hauled grain and flour and merchandise from Sterling, and Jane laughed suddenly in the midst of her humility at the thought that they were her property, as was one of the three stores for which they freighted goods. The water that flowed along the path at her feet and turned into each cottage yard to nourish garden and orchard also was hers, no less her private property, because she chose to give it free. Yet in this village of cottonwoods, which her father had founded, and which she maintained, she was not her own mistress. She was not able to abide by her own choice of a husband. She was the daughter of Witherstein. Suppose she proved it imperiously but she quelled that proud temptation at its birth. Nothing could have replaced the affection which the village people had for her. No power could have made her happy as the pleasure her presence gave. As she went on down the street, past the stores with their rude platform entrances, and the saloons where tired horses stood with bridles dragging, she was again assured of what was the bread and wine of life to her. That she was loved. Dirty boys playing in the ditch, clerks, teamsters, riders, loungers on the corners, ranchers on dusty horses, little girls running errands, and women hurrying to the stores all looked up at her coming with glad eyes. Jane's various calls and wandering steps at length led her to the Gentile quarter of the village. This was at the extreme southern end, and here some thirty Gentile families lived in huts and shacks and log cabins and several dilapidated cottages. The fortunes of these inhabitants of Cottonwoods could be read in their abodes. Water they had in an abundance, and therefore grass and fruit trees and patches of alfalfa and vegetable gardens. Some of the men and boys had a few stray cattle. Others obtained such intermittent employment as the Mormons reluctantly tendered them. But none of the families was prosperous. Many were very poor, and some lived only by Jane Witherstein's beneficence. As it made Jane happy to go among her own people, so it saddened her to come in contact with these Gentiles. Yet that was not because she was unwelcome. Here she was gratefully received by the women, passionately by the children. But poverty and idleness, with their attendant wretchedness and sorrow, always hurt her that she could alleviate this distress more now than ever before, proved the adage that it was an ill wind that blew nobody good. While her Mormon riders were in her employ, she had found few Gentiles who would stay with her, and now she was able to find employment for all the men and boys. No little shock was it to have man after man tell her that he dare not accept her kind offer. It won't do, said one Carson an intelligent man who had seen better days. We've had our warning, plain and to the point. Now there's Judkins. He packs guns, and he can use them. And so can the daredevil boys he's hired, but they've little responsibility. Can we risk having our homes burned in our absence? Jane felt the stretching and chilling of the skin of her face as the blood left it. Carson, you and the others rent these houses? She asked. You ought to know, Miss Witherstein, some of them are yours. I know. Carson, I never in my life took a day's labor for rent, or a yearling calf or a bunch of grass, let alone gold. Bivens, your storekeeper, sees to that. Look here, Carson, went on Jane hurriedly, and now her cheeks were burning. You and Black and Willet, pack your goods and move your families up to my cabins in the grove. They're far more comfortable than these. Then go to work for me. And if aught happens to you there, I'll give you money, gold enough to leave Utah. The man choked and stammered, and then, as tears welled into his eyes, he found the use of his tongue and cursed. No gentle speech could ever have equaled that curse, an eloquent expression of what he felt for Jane Witherstein how strangely his look and tone reminded her of Lassiter. No, it won't do, he said, when he had somewhat recovered himself. Miss Witherstein, there are things that you don't know, and there's not a soul among us who can tell you. I seem to be learning many new things, Carson. Well, then, will you let me aid you, say, till better times? Yes, I will, he replied with his face lighting up. I see what it means to you and you know what it means to me. Thank you. And if better times come, I'll be only too happy to work for you. Better times will come. I trust God and have faith in man. Good day, Carson. The lane opened out upon the sage-enclosed alfalfa fields and the last habitation at the end of that lane of hovels was the meanest. Formerly it had been a shed now it was a home. The broad leaves of a wide-spreading cottonwood sheltered the sunken roof and weathered boards. Like an Indian hut, it had one floor. Round about it were a few scanty rows of vegetables, such as the hand of a weak woman had time and strength to cultivate. This little dwelling place was just outside the village limits, and the widow who lived there had to carry her water from the nearest irrigation ditch. As Jane Witherstein entered the unfenced yard, a child saw her, shrieked with joy, and came tearing towards her with curls flying. This child was a little girl of four called Fay. Her name suited her, for she was an elf, a sprite, a creature so fairy-like and beautiful that she seemed unearthly. Mother, send it for you, cried Fay, as Jane kissed her. And who never come? I didn't know, Fay but I've come now. Faye was a child of the outdoors, of the garden and ditch and field, and she was dirty and ragged, but rags and dirt did not hide her beauty. The one thin little bedraggled garment she wore half covered her fine slim body. Red as cherries were her cheeks and lips, her eyes were violet blue, and the crown of her childish loveliness was the curling golden hair. All the children of Cottonwoods were Jane Witherstein's friends. She loved them all, but Fay was dearest to her. Fay had few playmates, for among the Gentile children there were none near her age, and the Mormon children were forbidden to play with her. So she was a shy, wild, lonely child. Mother's sick, said Fay, leading Jane toward the door of the hut. Jane went in. There was only one room, rather dark and bare, but it was clean and neat. A woman lay upon the bed. Mrs. Larkin, how are you? Asked Jane anxiously. I've been pretty bad for a week, but I'm better now. You haven't been here all alone, with no one to wait on you? Oh no, my women neighbors are kind. They take turns coming in. Did you send for me? Yes, yes. Several times, but I had no word. No messages ever got to me. I sent the boys, and they left word with your women that I was ill, and would you please come? A sudden, deadly sickness seized Jane. She fought the weakness, as she fought to be above suspicious thoughts, and it passed, leaving her conscious of her utter impotence. That, too, passed, as her spirit rebounded but she had again caught a glimpse of dark, underhand domination, running its secret lines this time into her own household. Like a spider in the blackness of night, an unseen hand had begun to run these dark lines, to turn and twist them about her life, to plait and weave a web. Jane Witherstein knew it now, and in the realization further coolness and sureness came to her and the fighting courage of her ancestors. Mrs. Larkin, you're better, and I'm so glad, said Jane. But may I not do something for you? A turn at nursing, or send you things, or take care of Fay? You're so good. Since my husband's been gone, what would have become of Fay and me but for you? It was about Fay that I wanted to speak to you. This time I thought surely I'd die, and I was worried about Faye. Well, I'll be around all right shortly, but my strength's gone, and I won't live long, so I may as well speak now. You remember you've been asking me to let you take Faye and bring her up as your daughter? Indeed, yes, I remember. I'll be happy to have her, but I hope the day... Never mind that. The day'll come, sooner or later. I refused your offer. And now, I'll tell you why. I know why, interposed Jane. It's because you don't want her brought up as a Mormon. No, it wasn't altogether that. Mrs. Larkin raised her thin hand and laid it appealingly on Jane's. I don't like to tell you. But it's this I told all my friends what you wanted They know you Care for you And they said for me to trust Fay to you Women will talk, you know It got to the ears of Mormons Gossip of your love for Faye And your wanting her And it came straight back to me In jealousy, perhaps That you wouldn't take Faye as much for love of her as because of your religious duty to bring up another girl for some Mormon to marry. That's a damnable lie, cried Jane Witherstein. It was what made me hesitate, went on Mrs. Larkin. But I never believed it at heart. And now, I guess, I'll let you. Wait, Mrs. Larkin. I may have told little white lies in my life, but never a lie that mattered, that hurt anyone. Now, believe me, I love little Fay. If I had her near me, I'd grow to worship her. When I asked for her, I thought only of that love. Let me prove this. You and Fay come to live with me. I've such a big house, and I'm so lonely. I'll help nurse you, take care of you. When you're better, you can work for me. I'll keep little Faye and bring her up without Mormon teaching. When she's grown, if she would want to leave me, I'll send her, and not empty-handed, back to Illinois, where you came from. I promise you. I knew it was a lie, replied the mother, as she sank back upon her pillow, with something of peace in her white, worn face. Jane Witherstein, may heaven bless you. I've been deeply grateful to you. But because you're a Mormon, I never felt close to you till now. I don't know much about religion as religion, but your God and my God are the same. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Riders of the Purple Sage, Part 3 of 12, by Zane Gray. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a monthly supporter by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. It's a great way to build your library of classic literature. Thanks for pitching in.